Shaft say he's gonna be here, he should be here. Open it up. Shaft's his name. Shaft's his game. Can't say he's gonna be here. And he ain't. It ain't right. his name. Shaft's his game. Hey, man, I don't know no Ben Buford. Funny. Oh, that Ben Buford. We're gonna take it out of your ass, Pip. I'm looking for a nigga named John Shaft. You just found him. The mob wanted Harlem back. They got Shaft up to here. All I'm asking you is to let me know what's going on. No names, no places, just what? Okay, Tom, use up your minute. Get out! Don't tell me, man. Where got here. God damn. Come on, in front of me. You want to play your super heavy black number? I'm going to play mine. We can nail your tail for manslaughter on what we got on you right now. Right on. What is it? When you lead that revolution, why they better be standing still? But you don't run with a down no more. We're done running, man. Shaft. Hotter than bond, cooler than bullet. Rated R. If you want to see Shaft, ask your mama. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. And I'm Johanna. And we are going to open with our lobby segment. Just a minute, folks. Yes, that's all it takes to visit our refreshment counter in the lobby. I have the perfect thing to pair for this movie. Care to take a guess? Hmm. Um, is it a good drink? No. It's actually, in fact, the opposite of that. I am going with Zesta Saltines. What? <laughs> yeah, Zesta Saltines. Oh, crackers. Yeah, because this episode <laughs> is being brought to you by a couple of crackers. So this brings me to the disclaimer. We're talking about African-American cinema today, and we're like three-quarters white here, which alone would be problematic, but we're specifically talking about the black exploitation genre, which is controversial even within the black community, as if there was such thing as a one monolithic black community. As with every subject we cover, we're just movie fans, not experts in the field, and we're going to be talking about the film. We'll get into, if you don't know what black exploitation is, we'll be talking about that too. Our last show we did was in 1970. The Man Who Haunted Himself, and now we're a year later, 1971. So, right up in the beginning of the year, January 12th, was the debut of the U.S. sitcom All in the Family about Archie Bunker. So just hold that in your head at the same time as when we go on to talk about Shaft. 
January 25th, in Uganda, Idi Amin deposes Milton Obote in a coup and becomes president. And also on that day, Charles Manson and three of the quote-unquote female family members are found guilty of the Tate-LaBianca murders from 1969. The Nasdaq Stock Exchange was founded in New York City also at the end of January. March 1st, a bomb exploded in the men's room at the U.S. State Capitol, and the Weather Underground, a.k.a. the Weathermen, claim responsibility. March 30th, Starbucks opened its first coffee shop in the state of Washington. April 20th, Swan v. Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education. This was the decision where the Supreme Court ruled unanimously that busing of students could be ordered to achieve racial desegregation. This is something that has been coming up in the news lately related to some of the ripple effects of the affirmative action decision by the Supreme Court. So it's interesting to think back. That was 1971. April 20th was the first day that NPR aired its first broadcast. Good old NPR. Wow. June 13th, the New York Times begins to publish the Pentagon Papers. Just a reminder, 1971, the Vietnam War was (laughs) mid-swing. The Pentagon Papers was an official U.S. military account of the Vietnam War that demonstrated, among other things, that Lyndon B. Johnson's administration had systematically lied, not only to the public, but also to Congress. June 17th, Richard Nixon declares the U.S. War on Drugs. Again, just hold that in your head simultaneously with Shaft, which premiered on June 23rd of this year, 1971. Good range of domestic and international intrigue, a lot of upheaval in 1971, but especially love the note about Richard Nixon declaring the war on drugs. I was interested in why you threw in the Manson family, Tate LaBianca murders in there. Well, some of it is we're looking at a film that has some violence in it. And the Manson murders, I think, still would have been really present in people's minds as a recent horrific, violent event. And of course, I mean, Vietnam War, the, the extreme violence over there. But in terms of what was going on domestically and uh, related to Hollywood, that seemed seemed relevant to note that that was still going on back then. And also because this particular film centers around the kidnapping of a young woman. And I think there's another thing about it that, that's worth noting because it really tells you something about what the times were like. There was a lot of racial tension at the time. The Manson family's goal was to start a race war. That seems kind of far-fetched nowadays, but back then, it probably, a lot of people feared possible. I mention that because that figures into the plot of today's film. (laughs) See, I had a hunch. (laughs) Okay. I want to talk specifically about the director, Gordon Parks. Gordon Parks was born in 1912 in Kansas. Fort Scott, Kansas, actually. And he was one of 15 kids, the youngest, I believe, of 15 kids. He went to a school that had both black and white people in the same school, only because (laughs) the place was too small for them to have separate schools. (laughs) But in school was segregated, and he experienced a lot of racial tension and violence as a kid. His mother died when he was 14, and he was sent to live in Minnesota with his, I think, his aunt and her husband and him did not get along, and he was turned out on the streets. And so he worked as, this is at 15 years old, mind you, he worked as a porter, he worked in a bunch of various jobs, including he was a pianist in a brothel. He was a jazz pianist. He would be a practicing musician for the rest of his life, and he would write not only jazz, but also symphonies and uh, ballet. But he's mostly known for his photography, 
He bought a camera when he was 28 years old and was encouraged by the people who developed the film, where he took his film to be developed, to try landing a job as a fashion photographer, which he got. And his fashion photos for a women's clothing store caught the eye of Joe Lewis, the boxer's wife. She encouraged him to move to Chicago, and he started a portrait business there. At that time, while he was working as a photographer, he was recruited to work for the Farm Security Administration, which existed during the Depression era to document social conditions in the U.S., particularly rural, but also urban ghetto. And these photos are a huge body of work from the 1930s, 40s. You know, so he becomes this award-winning photographer. His photos are still studied to this day by people looking at conditions at that time. During the war, he was assigned to document the Tuskegee Airmen. So there's that. After the war, he moved to Harlem. He became a fashion photographer for Vogue eventually got an assignment for Life magazine. He documented all sorts of stuff for Life magazine, particularly racial segregation, poverty, stuff like that, but also stars, you know, the Harlem Renaissance type stuff up through the civil rights era. He actually worked for Life magazine, I think all the way until like the 1970s, I think. So he's been in all sorts of galleries and, and stuff like that. He did a semi-autobiographical film in 1969 called The Learning Tree for Warner Brothers. And it's like a coming-of-age film about a boy growing up in Kansas. It's pretty much his story. But the success of that is what got him a multi-picture deal. And... I'm not sure exactly who came to who with what idea, but he was supposed to make this detective film, Shaft. We'll come back to Shaft in a second, but I want to talk about some of the other things that Gordon Parks did. He's also written novels and poetry. He did a series of abstract oil paintings. He co-founded Essence Magazine and was the editor for the first few years of its publication. Basically... You can't get more Renaissance man than this. He was a writer. He was a director. He poet, wrote symphonies and ballets. He was a jazz musician. He was a photographer, award-winning photographer, you know, in multiple genres of photography. He was a documentary filmmaker. I skipped over that part before he started making narrative films. He was a documentary filmmaker. I'm sure I missed other things. Well, and apparently with really great fashion taste. Which yes. is evident in the film as well. Something that I have not found in most of the bios and blurbs about him is my thing that brought me to uh, Gordon Parks. I come from an arts family, so I was exposed to his works pretty early on. I was taken to an exhibit of his photography. So I've seen many of his photos in full, life-size Silver halide prints. But uh, the thing that caught my eye was that early on when he was at Life magazine, he was actually on the crime beat. And one of the photos, I still remember seeing it, was it was sort of a G-Men photo. You know, this mm -hmm. was very popular in the 40s, 50s. And they were raiding an organized crime headquarter place, and they were about to bust down the door. You know, it's this dramatic photo. And the, the photo was taken in Newport, Kentucky. This was only a few miles from where I lived. I mean, that photo always struck me. And it was one of the few photos, most of his photos in his exhibits were in black and white. This was in color. And it was night. It was like this true crime photo. And I can still picture it in my head today. It's one of the things you don't find a lot talked about in biographies about him because it was his first assignment, I think, at Life magazine, but he was much more well-known for his other social issues rather than crime photos. 
but it folds into what we're talking about today because of some of the night photography that happens in this film. Although he was not the director of photography of Shaft, he probably had an influence on it. <laughs> so Shaft, that brings us to black exploitation. Shaft is considered one of the first black exploitation films. Let's go back in time here a little bit. For the first more than half of a century, there was little representation for blacks in Hollywood films. The very first film that sort of pioneered Hollywood, everything from the idea of a feature film to parallel action to everything like that, is the film we now call Birth of a Nation, but was originally called The Klansman, <laughs> about the KKK, that D.W. Griffith film where black people were played by white actors in blackface, and it was fairly grotesque. And that was kind of what there was until a few decades in, before black actors started getting roles, but they were horrible stereotypes most of the time. Even Academy Award winning turns. Yeah. Like Mammy and Hanny McDaniel in Gone with the Wind is still a really unfortunate stereotype. We'll talk a lot about stereotypes because they are the stock and trade of black exploitation. And stereotypes is a tricky thing because which is worse, having a stereotype or no representation at all? You know, or white people in blackface. So it's like, I I kind of think that maybe stereotypes aren't the worst thing in the world if that's the alternative, you know? Well, and it seems that for basically every minority group, whether you're talking racial minorities or sex gender minorities, that it starts, the representation always seems to begin with the stereotypes and then people get used to seeing that and then you can start to subvert it and and change it. But it's, yeah. I mean, just thinking about the way LGBT people have been portrayed in the media, that it's taken a long time for it to go from absurd caricatures to regular people who just happen to be gay. We can't not talk about Sidney Poitier because he came in the picture couple decades before this point, and he was probably the biggest name black actor for decades, but he wasn't that relatable to the wide spectrum of African Americans because he was almost like a black white person. He was living in a white, white world, acting like a white man, things like that. So in 1970, I think it was, director Melvin Van Peebles, he had made a marginally successful comedy called Watermelon Man, which was about a white bigot who body swaps with a black man, which kind of edgy for the time. He wanted to make an action movie. The studio rejected it. So he turned us back on a three-picture deal, I think, to go his own way. And using his profits from that film, like $100,000, and I think he convinced Bill Cosby to invest another $50,000. So for about $150,000, he made a film called Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And this film has been making the rounds. You've probably had an opportunity to see this in the theaters recently. If you haven't checked it out, definitely the next time it comes around to your local art house cinema worth seeing in the theater. So many consider this the first true black exploitation film. It was the film for which the term black exploitation was coined, which we'll get to in a minute. But I would argue myself that Ossie Davis's film from the previous year, uh, like 1968-ish, he did a, um, a Chester Himes novel, Cotton Comes to Harlem. That's a detective story, much like the one we're talking about today. I would argue that's the first true black exploitation film, but I would be outvoted by the masses who generally look at Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song as being the first. Not only did Melvin Van Peebles write this movie, finance it and produce it, direct it, he scored it himself, and he acts in it as Sweetback, the main character. <laughs> it's about a young boy raised in a brothel, becomes a pimp, 
is a long way away from the characters we see Sidney Poitier playing. <laughs> and it deals in a lot of criminal stereotypes. The pimp idea. And this did not sit well with some segments of the black community. In particular, Junius Griffin, the head of the Hollywood NAACP, thought that these were terrible stereotypes of black people to be presenting. And he coined the term black exploitation as a derogatory term for this kind of film. The term has since been like embraced by devotees of the genre. It was the first time a lot of black people saw someone that could be someone that lived in their neighborhood, right? Someone they could identify with. Fighting, uh, usually the, the um, antagonist is usually a white authority figure in these things. In this case, in Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song, it was white police who initially he's cooperating with and then they end up beating up a black suspect and he goes on the run from them. I don't want to go too deep on Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Maybe we'll do that in another episode sometime in the future. But it serves to introduce us to black exploitation films. Because here we have Gordon Parks working at a studio, MGM, which on the verge of bankruptcy, they way overextended themselves on Dr. Zhivago. This film did not cost a lot to make. It cost like $500,000. It was written by a man named Ernest Tidyman. He wrote the novel and adapted the screenplay. He was the same screenwriter who wrote The French Connection screenplay. Which is very interesting to think about right now. Uh, if you're following the news, the digital versions of French Connection that are available for streaming have been cleaned up of a lot of the racial slurs and profanities. No, They're, you don't do that yeah. to film history. No, it's it, and it's the kind of thing of um, you, you've now got these characters who are cleaned up and you know not quite as horrible people i don't think anybody was ever in danger of emulating gene hackman's behavior in the film like no one is looking to him to be a role model so it's kind of interesting that they felt like people would be more likely to use the n-word if they hear gene hackman using it in the film when sort of the point is he's a horrible person yeah. like we need to know this about him <laughs> but also film history if you get nothing else from this podcast, it should be that film history is part of history. And you don't just go change history. This is what made me so angry when Spielberg decided to digitally remove the guns from E.T. You know, it's like films should not be changed by the winds of the current time. Because, as I said, Junius Griffin of the Hollywood NAACP, he formed a coalition against black exploitation films. And this coalition involved NAACP chapters. It involved Christian organizations. So there was this big outcry. Well, wouldn't be long before Ernest Tidyman would receive the NAACP Image Award, one of the few white people to ever receive it for Shaft. So what in one time period may be viewed one way might be viewed a different way in another time period. And I think that's true of sort of black exploitation in general. Anyway, the studio actually originally had intended Shaft to be a white PI. Gordon Parks, I don't know if he said, I want to do this, but I want to do it with a black actor, or if he came up with that idea after he was chosen to work on this film, or he brought to them the idea of doing it. But either way, we are in full swing of the black exploitation genre. And people now are much more familiar with it due to the revival that started in the 90s, largely thanks to Quentin Tarantino. But between the early 70s and the late 70s, basically it was only about 10 years, there were hundreds of these movies made, hundreds of them made. So it's really a genre worth looking into, and it crosses all of the traditional genres. So there's black exploitation horror, black exploitation action, 
Well, and I'd say that that's most people's first exposure to black exploitation. It is just like looking at the video shelves and seeing Blackula on it, and well, like, oh, well, what's that? But uh, the genre has so much more than just parodies or retreads of films with white actors redone with a black cast. It's a much larger genre. But it remains controversial for the portrayal of black people because it does rely on certain stereotypes and things like that. And I think this controversy continues to this day. I think the long-running feud between Spike Lee and Quentin Tarantino is a great example of fallout from that. Well, and if you want to see a recent example of a film that is both trying to emulate the genre and also provide some sort of critique or inside look at it, the Netflix film Dolomite Is My Name with Eddie Murphy is actually pretty great at showing kind of a behind-the-scenes look at the making of the film and some of the dilemmas that might go into it. Yeah, Dolomite is a favorite of mine, the original Rudy Ray Moore Dolomite stuff, because it combined two different things that were going on at the same time, which was the Kung Fu films. By no means was, was that the only one. I mean, Chef did too, and to a lesser extent, uh, practically everything with Jim Kelly in it. But uh, the first black exploitation film I ever saw in a theater with an almost all black audience um, on opening night was this weird intermediate period, which you can either call it the beginning of the revival of the black exploitation genre or the end of, tail end of the original genre, because it's like right in between 1985-ish, Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, which was, again, a mashup of, um, well, a black, we talked about how black exploitation films cut across genres. It's the black exploitation version of a kung fu film. And so was, um, you know, Dolomite even had an all-girl kung fu army. You know? <laughs> so uh, so anyway, enough about Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song and Dolomite and all these other things. Let's talk about Shaft specifically. The first thing that you'll notice in this movie is that it opens with Isaac Hayes' Shaft theme. Oscar-winning Shaft Oscar theme. Oscar-winning Shaft theme, which is probably more well-known than the movie itself. This is one of the classics of funk, a new style of music that was emerging at the time. That also becomes one of the trademarks of black exploitation films in general is a funk soundtrack. Shaft is walking down the street, you know, Jay walking through traffic in New York. It was really something to see Times Square and Midtown of the 1970s, just because shortly after this, it all got really cleaned up and, you know, made nice for tourists. And um, in the 80s, probably 10 years later. Yeah, 10 yeah. years later. But like looking at it in the 70s with all of these movie theater marquees advertising porn, it was really something to see that window into the past. Yeah. What was the HBO show that was about that period? Um, oh, the one with McConaughey and uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, what was that called? Deuces. Is that it? Yeah, it's something like that. Anyway, I haven't actually the seen deuce, it. Maybe. The Deuce. Yeah. I haven't actually seen it, but uh, it it's about that time period. He stops, and I think he, he talks to a blind newspaper seller who tells him some gangsters are looking for him. He's been hearing this around town multiple people tell him this and so he's ready for them when he gets to his office he basically takes them into his office at gunpoint what he didn't count on is there was one inside this ends up in a fight and one of them lunges for him and goes flying out the window oh man that was great <laughs> um they want to take him to see bumpy Bumpy Jonas is the black gangster who controls Harlem. Shortly after this, he goes down to the police station to talk to his contact in the police, Lieutenant Androzi, who also has heard that Bumpy's looking for him. I was curious 
why you chose to include Shaft in our run-up to a couple James Bond films. Like, how are we getting from the saint to here? And one of the touch points that I found was this relationship between the badass, suave, sexy private detective and the police department that seems to be just a few steps or maybe more than a few steps behind. <laughs> but yeah, Andrasi's kind of an interesting character and his blatantly racist sidekick is the butt of a few jokes, which I appreciated. As long as we're on the subject of Bond, the paperback for Shaft, which hadn't even been released by the time Tidyman had convinced the studio to buy the script, the tagline on it, which became the tagline on the Shaft poster, was Hotter than Bond, cooler than Bullet. Mm. Okay. There it is then. I love James Bond, but James Bond is whiter than white. <laughs> <laughs> there was this whole other kind of action hero that was springing up after the 60s were over. This uh, street-level action hero, which is in fact, race aside, a throwback to the film noirs of the 1940s. Well, I was going to say, in some ways, this film seems like a black exploitation counterpart to the Dirty Harry films or other gritty action movies of the time. Or, I mean, you mentioned the French Connection, but other films that had anti-hero detectives at the center, but mostly white anti-hero detectives. Maybe it's because of my familiarity with Gordon Parks's Depression-era photography and his crime photos for Life magazine. But I draw a strong comparison to the Dashiell Hammetts and the, you know, Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade type, the private dick, you know? Yeah. Who both works with the cops and against the cops at the same time, you know? <laughs> well, and this film definitely has some of the noir hallmarks, femme fatales. The film's style is such a huge, important part of the experience in the way that noir films used light and darkness to create that stylized, heightened sense. So for that, yeah, definitely, it's a callback. Well, every single noir film that you see that involves a private detective. This is definitely the case with a lot of the Bogart films. Someone comes in and hires him. And inevitably, they're not giving him the full story. Yeah. <laughs> this scene with the detectives is oh, so okay. excellent. The interaction ends with Shaft really not telling them anything about what's going on. He doesn't have to tell them anything, but they say, where are you going, Shaft? And he says, to get laid. Where the hell are you going? <laughs> <laughs> Which just like one of one of the best, you know, exit lines ever. But what was really revealing about this scene was the blatant racism towards Shaft. Looking at other films where it is a predominantly white cast, you will get hints of it, mostly in the sense that a lot of the black characters are minor parts, they're stereotypes, they're sort of treated like they're in the background. But here, the lieutenant says, come on, Shaft, what's all this black shit? You ain't so black. <laughs> and holds up a pen next to his skin as if that's going to say something. And then Shaft retorts, you ain't so white either, and holds up a white mug. And just like, the the fact that this film is about race relations is like, on the surface, right from the get-go. Right, but you get the feeling that Andrazi and Shaft actually like each other. Right? Yeah. There's this interesting tension that I think is actually true to real life when it comes to PIs and bail bondsmen and things like that, which is that the cops don't like them on the one hand, but then they also do like them because... They have common goals. So even though they don't, they don't always get along, they can help each other out because PIs can do things cops can't legally do. And mm. cops can feed information to PIs that they couldn't normally get. So I think that this is something that you see in, in this film. But anyway, I found that very interesting. 
Okay, so race is definitely at the center of this. And we get taken to see Bumpy, the big man in Harlem. He basically tells Shaft that his daughter has been kidnapped. Throughout the scene, you get the sense that Bumpy really cares about his daughter. Not just in a, like, they can't mess with me kind of way, but actually he really genuinely cares. And it's like the film has this collective energy pause when Bumpy says she's going to college to really establish this is about bringing his daughter home safely. It's not just about the turf war with the mafiosos who kidnapped her. I think it's really interesting that this comes out the same year as The Godfather. And there's this running theme in The Godfather of the head gangster, The Godfather, being, my son's going to go to college. He's not going to grow up in this life. You know, there's that parallel in this, even though they came out so close together, you know? Mm. So she's been kidnapped, and he, he says that, you know, she has nothing to do with this. And so Chef agrees to do it. I forgot what he asked for. $50 an hour? $50 an hour plus expenses, like, which is a lot of money for 1971. I don't make $50 an hour right now in 2023. I know. $50 <laughs> an hour would have been insane. Adjusted for inflation, that's got to be something like $250 an hour or something. Yeah, that's um, good money. Yeah. Plus expenses and don't ask how I spend it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so Blank uh, check, in yeah, other words. Yeah, blank check. So he, why did he come to Shaft? You know, Shaft asked, and he's like, well, you can work in the white neighborhood, you know, which my people can't. You have the contacts with the man, basically. Although one of his suspects that Bumpy has is the black militants. They never say who they are, but they're a lot like the Weather Underground or the Black Panthers or something like that. You know, it's these black militants. Why they would take her, we don't know. Um, but they control a small slice of Harlem, the one part of Harlem that Bumpy doesn't control. So he doesn't know if they're behind it or not, or another possibility is the mafia. For those not familiar with New York City, Harlem is uptown. It's, you know, like north of 110th Street. And the Italian neighborhood, Little Italy, is downtown. It's near, like, City Hall and all that. So they're at opposite ends of the island. He stops briefly at home to have amazing sex on this fur-covered couch. First of all, his home is amazing. He's got (laughs) exposed brick and, like, mid-century modern furniture and stuff like that. And, yes, he, he stops home to have sex. It's amazing. He's just like hanging out naked on on this fur covered couch when his she seems like like possibly a steady ish girlfriend. Not like they have an exclusive relationship, but that they've they've known each other for for a while, and this is sort of a regular routine. And the sex scene with um, there's just these colors that kind of come in and out in a very seventies way, and a lot of close ups on their hands and it's very sensual and surprisingly tasteful and and well done but it goes on for for a good amount of time you really get to sink into it <laughs> is this the white woman that no takes a shower no no okay, that comes later. no that's that's later and she's okay. awful this sex scene is great <laughs> uh, she's awful all right well we'll get to that um <laughs> This is another hallmark of black exploitation films is in your face sex scenes, like not subtle at all. So yeah, so we have that interlude and then we move on to the back to our detective story. <laughs> so Chef tracks down Ben Buford, who's the head of the militants. And while he's there talking to them, they of course claim they don't know anything about this. There's a shootout. Some unidentified gunmen start shooting it out with the militants. And then things go to pieces. And these guys, who I think are part of Bumpy's group, are convinced that Shaft set them up for this and that Shaft must be actually working for the mafia or whoever it was who kidnapped the daughter. And Shaft insists, and we know that he had nothing to do with that. 
but they lost a lot of guys, and this upped the stakes significantly. Basically, they go on the run, and we're not sure who the target is. If it's Shaft, he talks to his police contact, who tells him that this could lead to a full-blown mob war between the uh, mafia and Bumpy's men. Well, and not just a mob war, but possibly escalating from then into a larger race war because it yeah. is the so, Italian mob versus the... This gets us back to what I was talking about with the, the Manson family, which is basically that racial tensions were at an all-time high, and especially after there were a lot of armed black militants. That is not just fiction in this movie. That was the case at the time. There was this fear that especially in a very, very uh, close proximity like in New York City, that a full-blown race war could break out because if a lot of whites and blacks were fighting each other, it wouldn't matter that one happened to be the mob and the other happened to be the black syndicate. They're going to end up fighting each other, right? And then that's going to spill over into people who aren't part of the crime families but siding with the crime families, you know, that kind of thing. That's the fear. The cops are interested in this getting settled quickly, which explains why they're willing to help Shaft out. Yeah. So they tell him about mafia guys who are after him. When he's going back to his apartment, he sees them. He does this great thing where he sends this homeless guy up to his apartment to turn the lights on so that they could pretend that he's home. And then goes over to the bar... Where they're watching. Where they're watching for him, looking out his window, and Shaft pretends to be a bartender and is great at it. Well, not only that, we get Raleigh, the bartender, who is openly gay. A gay stereotype, like pink shirt and all that, but he's not extremely flaming uh, gay, you know, over-the-top kind of character. You could believe that he's a real guy, right? Gay... And lesbian stuff in black exploitation can run the breadth. There's some where the portrayals are not great. This, for the time, I think it was really good. Like, uh, you know, it yeah, was... Yeah, Shaft respects him. You know, like, they, they're uh, not necessarily buddies, but, you know, when the bartender... When... And he's white. We have to point that out, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But when he comes by and tells Shaft, like, hey, this lady is interested in you, you know, like... I, th- I think she might also be interested in me, but I'm going to have to, like, let her know that that's not how, that's not, I don't play for her team. <laughs> yeah, and, and so uh, so he basically acts as a wingman and helps him pick up this white woman. But before we get to that, he has drinks with the actual mobsters who are watching for him. <laughs> and while he is talking to them, he talks on the phone with Androsi and, like, Tells him encoded messages, you know, and like, come here, pick them up. You know, they're here at this bar. And then just as the cops are arriving, he takes a bottle and smashes one over the head with it and gets into a bar fight with them here. Yeah. And then he heads back home with a woman who is seems very hot to trot, but is super annoying. It is a total brat the next morning. The sisters were not too happy with this character. Shaft sleeping with a white woman. So this is the one and only time that happens. After this point, all of Shaft's lovers will be black. Richard Roundtree defended it. Like this was actually a friend of his who played the the woman in the scene. I forget the character's name. But yeah, she's a little bit bratty. And the next morning she uh, says that he's great in bed, but he's shitty at the next morning. And then she leaves, but leaves the door open while he's on the phone. And he says, hey, shut the door. And she's like, shut it yourself, shitty. (laughs) (laughs) Which becomes an important line in this. Yeah. Because Androsi shows up again at his apartment. It turns out that the um, police station was bugged. And the captain now knows all about this and wants to talk to Shaft pronto. So he sent Androsi to pick him up. Androsi fills him in on this and says, I got to take you in. If I find you, (laughs) (laughs) you, are you home? And he's like, no. (laughs) (laughs) And then he leaves. And the last thing he says before he goes out is, he leaves the door open and says, shut it yourself, shitty. So he was obviously uh, listening in at the time. 
the next stage in the plan is that Shaft is going to try to negotiate with the mobsters that were arrested at the bar to set up a meeting so that they can establish a, an exchange to rescue the daughter. And he manages to persuade one of the gangsters to arrange this. Who, he went who, to the prison to talk to the mobsters, and then they set up the meeting at the restaurant where he orders an espresso. Right. Which is really interesting because <laughs> I don't know if they didn't realize this or not, but like there's this whole conversation insulting each other by food. He says something about uh, you can have garlic in it or something like that to insult Italian cooking. And the Italian mafia guy makes a joke about soul food. But I think someone somewhere along the way forgot that espresso itself is Italian. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I got a little lost there also. The music in the scene that follows where Shaft is driving to the location, the soundtrack in this film throughout is pretty incredible, but there's some great funk music during the scenes when Shaft is driving, and it's worth watching the whole film just for some of this music alone. I forgot to mention one of my favorite lines that was in this that happened way back when... There's this long-running spar between Shaft and Bumpy's flunkies, specifically Willie. And at one point he tells Willie, don't let your mouth get your ass in trouble. <laughs> anyway. That's a great line. Um, this will not be the last time they, uh, they say stuff to each other. They go to where Bumpy's daughter is being held. He's got the uh, black militants following him. And once he gets there and breaks in, he grabs the guard outside the door and has a gun to his head. And, you know, they go in the front door and, like, we get the Mexican standoff, right? So we got him holding the gun on one of the mafia guys and then one of the mafia guys holding a gun on Bumpy's daughter. They refuse to let him take her away and uh, actually shoots right through the, um, the mobster that's holding, yeah. that Shaft is holding. Shaft takes a bullet or two here, too. And right before he passes out on the floor, they tell him to take a message back to Bumpy. Something to do with, like, tell him he's got to play ball or something. I don't know what, what the exact line was. And then Shaft passes out. Ben's militant guys show up. They drag him back to his girlfriend's place where they call some crime doctor guy <laughs> to come patch him up. You know, some guy they know who knows something about medicine but is not an actual doctor. He manages to pull out the bullets, patch him up. And uh, they also know where she was taken, which was to a hotel. And so... When he comes to, he and the uh, militants plan this raid. They call Bumpy for getaway cars. Yep. Basically yellow cabs to hang out. They all get to the hotel and they dress up in the uh, uniforms of the uh, kitchen staff and uh, the hotel porters. hotel porters. Yeah. Remember, Gordon Parks was a hotel porter. Uh, mm. His first job. One of the things I like about this ending sequence is there's a lot of prep work where you're not exactly sure how it all fits into the plan. It's not at all like the kind of film where they tell you, like, here's what we're going to do. And then they walk you through, like, we're prepping all this stuff. And then you wait and see if it turns out the way they planned or not. In this version of the finale you're kind of watching these things happen here and there you know like one guy's clearly dressed up as a porter and shows up and takes their order of you know soda and coffee or something and you're like okay so that guy is sort of involved like i wonder how that's going to fit in and then you get to see shaft making molotov cocktails with another guy and there's a fun moment where he's like you know, but this is gin, you know, and they share a little bit of gin together. And you're sort of watching that being like, okay, and I wonder how that's going to fit in. And then suddenly, once the finale starts, it's like, bam, 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 action. I was never into 70s fashion and like brown leather trench coats and stuff like that. But this is the point where Shaft is in the true head to toe black leather 
black leather gloves and everything. That is cool. That I like that part, you know? Yeah, <laughs> but, although it seems like the man can pull off basically any look. Like, I've never seen anyone who looked so good in turtlenecks. All right. Yeah, <laughs> he was a model, so... Shaft goes to the roof, and he repels down the side to the room window, throws a burning thing into the <laughs> I don't know what the point of throwing this thing except yeah, as I a distraction. Also, yeah, I don't know why it had to be on fire. Except maybe just as a distraction? I don't know. But then he smashes in, kills the guard that's guarding her, grabs her. Meanwhile, all his guys start their offensive against the mobsters in the hallway. Yeah, and they managed to pretty quickly get the daughter out of there into the elevator and shut the elevator doors before any of the other mobsters can intervene and make a quick dash for the cab. Like, it all seems to go perfectly according to plan, which, I mean, like, they lost a couple guys, but I think that they knew that that was going to happen. Yeah, and they managed to make it out and into the cabs and escape. The only person who doesn't get in the cab is Shaft himself, who walks across the street to a phone booth and calls Androsi. To and, rub it in. <laughs> and says that he's busted it open, and Androsi says, well, you know, close the case, you know? <laughs> to which his answer is, close it yourself, shitty. <laughs> and then ends the film walking off laughing. A really awesome, he's got a great laugh. Yeah. This was super fun. It has been on my watch list for the longest time, and I'm so glad finally got a chance to watch it. Uh, it was it was a riot. Just, you know, if, if you want to have a lot of fun watching a movie, watch Shaft. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that of the exploitation films, and there are a lot of good ones, Shaft is one of the best. You could do a lot worse than starting your dive into black exploitation with Shaft. It's definitely a film that even if you're not interested in the genre, you should see. It's one of the great crime films of the early 70s. Of course, it was super overshadowed the same year by The Godfather, but definitely, definitely worth seeing. If you liked the show, even just a little bit, recommend it to someone. Recommend it to one other person. If you want to write to us, uh, well, even if you want to say what we got wrong, you could do that. Oh, yeah. No, I'm expecting <laughs> lots of comments about this episode. Uh, given the fact that you and I are vastly unqualified to talk about black exploitation without an expert present. <laughs> well, I, you're opening the floodgates. We're going to get canceled. Before the show even takes off, we're going to get canceled. All right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, GC8 Podcast, letter G, letter C, number 8 Podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's how we handle our communications. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Johanna. Signing off. Did, did we just skip over one of the best sex scenes ever?